Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear from leading thinkers from our university and around the world. If you would like to hear more from our experts, why not attend Raising the Bar 2017, which will see some of our academics give 20 talks in 10 bars across Sydney, all on one night, Wednesday the 25th of October. To register for your free ticket, head to raisingthebarsydney.com.au. Enjoy the podcast. Hi everybody, my name is Steffi Hemelright-Donald, I'm from UNSW and I'm here um, to facilitate a conversation between Lucia Sorbera and Fadma Aitmus. Um, so I, I'm really looking forward to it. But be, before we begin the proceedings, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. Um, and we hope that their elders, past and present, will bring us, bring us inspiration today. As we share our knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, we should also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. So tonight's panel, Feminism and Women's Political Activism in North Africa, Challenges and Perspectives, um, really brings together different perspectives. First of all, I should say that Bronwyn Winter was going to come as well, but she's very sick. So fortunately, we still have Fadma and Lucia, but I apologize for Bronwyn's absence. Um, but women's political activism has a century of history in North Africa, a history that intersects other social movements and that has been documented and narrated by two generations of feminist scholars. Yet the representation of North African women in mainstream Western public discourse tends to neglect this history and continues to be grounded on Orientalist stereotypes. So this panel, this conversation, challenges hegemonic narratives, framing North African women's political activism in the context of the 2010 and 2011 uprisings and their aftermath, or aftermaths. The historical and contemporary political experience of women in Tunisia, Algeria, Egypt, and Morocco shows on one side the necessity to go beyond generalization, such as Arab women, Muslim women, North African women, and to shed light on the differences alongside continuities emerging in different contexts. Uh, so we want to discuss challenges, we want to discuss perspectives, and we want to discuss feminist activism and try and tease out how these things come together, how they influence each other, and how we can better understand situations in North Africa now. And also, happy Eid to the people who are celebrating today. I'm going to give you a very quick introduction to Fadma and Lucia. I'm sure lots of people here know Lucia, but I'll maybe start with her because you know her so well and you just want to hear about how great she is. Um, she is acting head of the Department of Arabic Language and Cultures here at the University of Sydney. Uh, she's also Kathleen Fitzpatrick Visiting Fellow in the Laureate Research Program in International History. She's published extensively on modern Egyptian history, Egyptian feminism, the Egyptian 2011 revolution, and on Iraqi cinema. And besides her academic work, Dr. Sorbera carries on intense activity in public outreach in Australia and in Europe. 
She's one of the guest curators of the Torino Book Fair in Italy, where she designed and curates with uh, Paola Caridi the program Arab Souls, a focus on Arab literature and cultures. And I should say that um, since uh, Fadma has been in Sydney, they've found out they both know Paola, so we've got a contact there. Dr. Fadma Aitmus uh, is currently Distinguished Visitor to the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of New South Wales. She teaches in the Ainchok Faculty of Letters and Humanities at University Hassan II of Casablanca, and she's Research Coordinator at the Moroccan Centre of Social Sciences at the same university. And she's also Associate Researcher at the Centre de Recherche Économie, Société et Culture, excuse my French, um, in the University Mohammed VI Polytechnic at Rabat. She holds a PhD in political science from Hassan II, University of Casablanca, where she wrote her thesis on the emergence of Moroccan nationalism from local to national networks. Her research is mainly focused on issues related to nationalism and social movements, gender and socio-political transformations, history and memory, youth cultures, social media, and migration. So I'm going to start off by asking both speakers to think for a while about what your perspectives on women's roles and their positions in North Africa. You each have slightly different, if you like, geographical and regional foci and expertise. But if you could just begin to sort of position women, and we know that, of course, women come in different classes, different religions, different histories, different ethnicities. So women is not a homogeneous term. Women are women. But um, could you just think about that aloud for us for a while so we begin to get a sense of what you think is happening in parts of North Africa now. I'll start with Lucia. Thank you. Thank you. First, I would like to thank Stephanie for inviting Fadma to Sydney and uh, for sharing her with us. It, uh, it has been a great opportunity to have Fadma here for a couple of weeks and to interact with uh, both her and Stephanie at uh, the University of New South Wales. So I'm, I'm very grateful for, for this opportunity. And uh, uh, well, you, you, you raised the question in the right way. When we think of women uh, in North Africa as everywhere in the world, we need to think intersectionally. We need to think of uh, class differences, religious differences, and we need to think about we need to think about generations, uh, and uh, we need to think about uh, how differently they position themselves in the political spectrum. You know, my experience uh, of uh, women in the, in uh, especially in Egypt uh, is the experience of the historians. So when I first uh, approached Egyptian history. I, I was interested in understanding political history, and my perception was that it was impossible to understand Egyptian political history without uh, understanding uh, you know, the, the position that women political movements took towards uh, the, political, the politics uh, of, of the nation and of the region. Uh, the position they took changed over time, of course, because conditions were different. You know, the, the emergence of feminism in Egypt uh, is uh, embedded uh, in the nationalist fight, in the anti-colonial fight. And one of the first lessons I learned by Egyptian feminist historians and by international historians who were studying Egypt uh, was that Egyptian feminists fought a double battle. The battle against uh, the 
um, indigenous patriarchy and the battle which was both religious and secular and the battle against the colonial patriarchy. Because when the colonial encounter happened, uh, European women were not enfranchised. You know, European women did not have the voice. And, uh, you know, the, the British authorities in Egypt uh, were against women's suffrage in, the, in, uh, in Britain. So uh, we, we have memoirs and reports about that. So there was a double speech by the colonial authorities. On one side, they were justifying the colonial intervention and the colonial power in the name of modernity and uh, progress uh, and uh, you know civilized the civilizing mission uh, this was most the case of France but uh, also uh, Britain of course and including Italy of course because you know we as Italian we have uh, neglected uh, uh, or we, we live in a collective amnesia of our colonial enterprise which was one of the most violent in history and uh, the long uh, misogyny of Italian colonial mentality is still alive and has strong implications in the way uh, we, we address uh, migrations today. But this is another story. The, what is important to, you know, to start answering to uh, Stephanie's question is that uh, when we look at, uh, I think that the prism of history helps us uh, to unpack this big question. You know, what is the position of women uh, in the political sphere? Uh, it depends on the political, uh, it depends on the historical moment. And I think you know, this, is, uh, this maybe applies also to Morocco. Thank you. Thank you, Stephanie, for uh, this introduction. And thank you for having me. Yes, I, I think also that this uh, historical perspective is very interesting uh, to understand the evolution of the, the, the position of women in, in Morocco, but as well in North Africa. And we're going to find that there is some, uh, some differences, but as well some... Similarities, sorry. Sorry for my English. Uh, so, uh, like, um, I, I, th I think in Morocco we can speak about three generations of women activists. Like the first one, as you mentioned, during the colonial uh, period, where uh, women mainly, um, like in the 1940s, 1950s, had to struggle uh, twice, uh, first against uh, patriarchy, uh, society, conservatism, but as well uh, uh, against uh, colonial imperialism, etc. And uh, they were as well uh, linked to political parties, political nationalist parties at that moment. It means that the, the feminism was not a priority at that time. First, we have to, uh, to struggle for nationalism against, uh, against colonial, uh, colonial French, etc. And then when we're going to get independence, we are going to negotiate uh, the, the rights for women. This is mainly the first uh, generation, and it continues just uh, after independence with what, what we call, maybe we're gonna talk about it later as well in Tunisia, what we call uh, state feminism. It means that the, the, the Moroccan uh, authorities, mainly the king, uh, really helped to establish like, uh, uh, NGOs uh, to uh, advocate uh, women's rights in Morocco, uh, and those were mainly elitist, aristocratic uh, women, and uh, uh, they were just 
like for the, maybe for the legitimacy uh, also of the system, uh, and they mainly uh, worked on uh, on education for for girls mainly, uh, but they are not really Im implemented in the in the whole uh, in the whole country. Uh, the the second generation war was uh, on the uh, 1980s mainly. They also came from uh, political parties, mainly leftists, but then they, they gained their autonomy from political parties because they, they don't want anymore to be like a second, uh, second uh, priority for, for, uh, for political parties. And because as well there was like uh, uh, external pressures from uh, World Bank or other uh, international institutions on Moroccan authorities to, uh, to improve women's rights and human rights in general at that time. So th this was the beginning of the emergence in Morocco of what we call uh, civil society. And then, the, this is really broadly speaking, the third generation uh, uh, became really uh, active publicly during uh, what we call the Arab Spring, the, the local version of Arab Spring in, in Morocco. And there was like, like a gap between the, in, in terms of ideology, but as well in terms of age as well, generations. Uh, and we, uh, maybe we're gonna speak uh, more about that later. Thank you. Thank you very much. So can I then probe both of you a little bit more about 2011 and 2012? And what, what were the perspectives of female political activists in the run-up to those events? And what were those events as well? well? I'm sure most people here know, but just remind us a little bit of what happened. And, and, what's, you know, and then, as a sort of addition, how have women look, begun to look back on those events and felt... Uh, you know, felt about their their success, their failures, their unexpected ramifications, uh, and so forth. Yes, I I've been uh, I've been in Egypt uh, almost every year since 2011 for for my research. And uh, you know, the first time I went, I, I went there. You know, I was very determined to do to continue my historical research. You know, at that time, I wanted to explore the 50s and the 60s and so on. I arrived there and I realized that uh, it didn't make any sense at that moment. You know, that was the moment to be in the street and to be in the, in the women's collectives and to, you know, just to follow the stream of history. And that's how I started, you know, having long conversations with uh, young women's activists and, uh, but also connecting again with the earlier generations of uh, women's activists that I knew since I was doing my previous research uh, in, uh, in the early 2000s. So I, I had the opportunity to discuss about the, the, the ongoing process uh, with different generations of women. And of course, since then, you know, a lot of you know, significant scholarship has been produced. So now we can also read some of these reports. And, uh, what I noticed uh, between 2011 and last year was an evolution in the way uh, women's activists have been thinking of the ongoing process. Uh, writing a history of the present uh, is not an easy task because you, know, you need to take into consideration uh, main, many, idea, many components uh, you know, that uh, make the, your, you know, your paintings. So you, you really need to be careful and to think about you know, the 
the stories that you collect and uh, how they are situated uh, and uh, the moment you know the same person can give you a different account in different moments because their subjectivity evolves over the process and this is completely legitimate this does not uh, make the the evidence uh, less relevant. At the end of the day, all the historical sources are constructed, even written sources. But as written sources are collected in archives by men in, law, men in streets, they are considered more relevant. Uh, oral sources uh, are perhaps more volatile and they, and they need to be treated in a, in a very sensitive way, I think. So what I noticed is that at the beginning, in the, in the early months, uh, Gender was not at the center of the agenda, you know. In the narratives, they were saying we were in the square as citizens. You know, the Egyptian revolution was a moment uh, of inclusiveness. Uh, 25th of January 2011, everyone was in the square. You know, across uh, political ideologies, generations, uh, and um, f religions, you know, it was an overwhelming opposition uh, to, you know, an authoritarianism that have disempowered the Egyptian people for decades. So people were really claiming, you know, what they were chanting: uh, social justice, uh, dignity, and freedom. And and this was for everyone, for women and men, and uh, for you know of different social backgrounds. Uh, women realized very soon that uh, this was not enough and uh, that the revolution should have also been a feminist revolution. And this was very clear, especially since March 2011, uh, when a demonstration of women uh, was uh, uh, attacked, and, uh, and the day after, 12 women were taken by the police uh, to the Egyptian museum, and they were raped. You know, they, the police said, the authorities say they were doing virginity tests to, to check, you know, it, and, but this was actually a state rape. And it was very clear for them since then that the revolution should continue and should have had also a gender agenda for everyone, not only for women. And that the violence of the state was the same violence exercised by the Mubarak regime in the 90s. Another important thing that I learned uh, talking to women's activists in the past few years is that, uh, you know, 2011 uh, has been an important turning point, but not a beginning. Uh, Western media have represented, uh, you know, have hyper-represented the presence of women in the square at the beginning. This is not the case. Women have been uh, uh, active political actors uh, since the beginning of the 20th century, but you know the movement uh, which uh, created the revolution in 2011 was a movement which grown up uh, all over the 90s, and it's very much connected to the human rights movement in Egypt, and this is perhaps the reason why today is one of the most targeted. You know. Uh, human rights activists and feminist activists, uh, which some of the times are the same activists, are among the most targeted by the current regime. Mm? And, uh, and unfortunately, uh, none, of the, you know, none of the democratic Western governments is doing anything about that. Um, 
Uh, I'm going to try to, uh, to present you uh, an outline about what we mean when we speak about um, Arab Spring in, in Morocco. Um, actually, it's not like in Egypt or in Tunisia, uh, like a revolution in Morocco. Um, it was really um, something... Uh, in, in, the, in the perspective of the state, it's like a reform. We just uh, continue reforms. And as well, it's not really uh, uh, an event uh, because we used to have demonstrations on the street coming from uh, many uh, social and cultural movements. Uh, may it be uh, uh, like for, uh, for linguistic rights, cultural rights or women's rights, etc. Uh, so it's not it's not really rupture. It's not something that we we we, ha we never have uh, the right to demonstrate. And in 2011 we, we got it. No, we we used to have the, this, but the 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 context at that moment made it uh, sp special. Uh, how? Uh, in in uh, like in February, 20 February 2011, the movement started, and they called the, themselves. Uh, the movement of 20 February. So it was really, um, it's not homogeneous group, it's really uh, gathering uh, young people, but uh, coming from many uh, political parties. Uh, some of them, uh, they, they, are, they are not really members of, uh, of, of these parties, but just uh, sympathizants of these parties. Uh, others are, ha have no political uh, affiliations. Uh, many are coming from uh, NGOs, civil society mainly, uh, and also some are Islamists. So this is really a combination, uh, heterogeneous, which makes it difficult to find a minimum of claims. So uh, each of these groups, uh, the women uh, had to negotiate to put the gender equality and some claimants in, in that uh, sense on this list of claimants. Uh, the uh, the, the Amazir people had to put their rights on cultural uh, rights as well on, on this list. So they found out at the end that, okay, they got like a, a list of uh, 10 or 8 uh, points that this is the minimum that we're going to uh, work on it. And we have to force the state to respond to these claims. So it's, it's, it's a bit uh, diff different from what was in, in, uh, in, in Egypt. So uh, equality, gender equality was there in the beginning, and women were participating in the street demonstrations at the beginning. Uh, as I said, it started in 20 February. We got the response from the state uh, 9 March. It was quick. Uh, we, we had this speech from the king saying, uh, it's, not, it's not like in Tunisia, I heard you or something like that. It's just we're going in continuity of the reforms that the state had already uh, started before. We're going to do these reforms, etc., etc. And uh, to do this, uh, he gathered like a commission, a Moroccan national commission, uh, composed by uh, feminists, by uh, people from political parties, from civil society, from scholars on uh, constitutional law, in order to reform the constitution of the country. And this commission has the role to invite all uh, all uh, forces of, of, of the political and uh, civil society to come up with their claims, with the, wh what are the points that you, you want to put on this new reform. So it was really a, uh, an experience uh, very interesting at that moment where 
uh, it was really uncertainty. It, uh, nothing was certain. So it was really uh, in the perspective of the state, but as well in the perspective of the society, no one knows the future. So it was really uncertain. So it was uh, uh, a good moment to negotiate in each part. So it, it took like uh, from March to uh, the end of June, we got the, the, the draft of the constitution. And then uh, July, uh, we passed it for referendum and it, it passed like uh, uh, 98 something percent. Yeah. And then we got anticipated elections. And here, the resemblance with the similarities with Egypt and Tunisia, it's uh, the, the Islamist political party, PJD, who won the elections. So uh, uh, what I want to, uh, to add here uh, regarding women's, um, women activists, and I said because uh, at that moment, there was like the emergence of a third generation of uh, feminism. Uh, there was this young women who were uh, criticizing the uh, f uh, former feminist NGOs who, who were on, on 80s uh, mainly, uh, because those first f uh, NGOs were working on uh, changing text, changing laws, changing we changed the, the family code, for instance. So and they don't participate uh, on. Uh, street demo demonstration, so they were criticized for that. It's like they are co-opted by the system. So the, these new young women are criticizing them for, for that and for being elitist because they said you're not uh, enough grounded on the country and this new young generation uh, are mainly on, on uh, on social media, they are using uh, colloquium uh, language, they are uh, working as well for, uh, with, uh, with men uh, a lot, and they are uh, claiming not only equality, but as well justice, social justice. Uh, they are against uh, corruption, and they say that we need all these things, all these reforms, before uh, really reaching this uh, equality as uh, as the target, as an ideal target that they all want. So can I now ask you a little bit about rural women and what their role has been over the last 10 years in change, both in the Moroccan constitutional change and in family change and in, uh, and in uh, customary law. I know you've been thinking about that. But also in Egypt where, you know, the kind of story that was coming into Western media was that the young people in the square were young urban people, but the rural people just needed to earn a living and they soon got tired of change. What's your perspective on that and what do you think the connections are between women in not just different class groups, but quite specifically the urban, possibly, usually more modern woman and the rural woman? Yeah, that's a very good question. And you know, the, the representation of uh, a rural world completely detached and uh, alienated by the city is, uh, is, quite, is quite wrong, actually, because Egypt is mainly, you know, a rural country. Of course, Cairo is uh, enormous and, uh, and it's, you know, is the city. You know? And there are, of course, other important cities in, in, in Egypt, but, uh, you know, it's uh, Cairo is Cairo. 
but there is a, a continuity and a connection between what is Cairo and the, and the countryside. Uh, because the fellahin, the peasants, uh, and especially women, uh, they travel every day to the city to sell their goods. And uh, you know, you find uh, peasant women in you know, almost all the middle class neighborhoods uh, with little chariots sell selling their own uh, uh, goods. And, uh, and so uh, they, they are part of the, of the urban scene. I have also to say that the expropriation of uh, peasants' women uh, of their agency, again, goes back uh, to the colonial time, you know, to the forced process of industrialization of Egypt, uh, which was mainly uh, uh, related to the production of cotton uh, for the uh, British um, global market, uh, which, you know, expropriated women uh, by a prerogative which was them, you know, in the, in the big patriarchal and peasant families. Uh, you know, families uh, own the process of production of cotton from the beginning till the end. You know, with the industrializations, this process was fragmented and this had strong implications of women. This is why contemporary historians uh, tend to, you know, be critical of the, of the effect that uh, the process of modernization had on women. It was good for certain categories of women, of course, you know, for, you know, middle-class educated uh, journalists who entered uh, in the public scene as authors, so they gained an authorial voice, uh, but it was not so good for the peasants uh, who became, uh, you know, expropriated uh, of their, of their uh, economic agency. And, uh, and this has lost conse long consequences uh, in, um, uh, in the history, especially because uh, in, uh, in the 90s, again, late 80s, early 90s, the, the Egyptian government decided to uh, endorse and to um, engage in neoliberal politics, uh, which had strong and very negative impact on the majority of the population. The, the little welfare which was there was uh, cut uh, to comply to the requests of the International Monetary Fund. And here again, you know, the, the attitude uh, of the International Monetary Fund and uh, of the so-called donors uh, uh, had a negative impact uh, on, uh, on the life of the population and the way the Egyptian government uh, used this, you know, to create a new elite, a new uh, enriched elite, uh, had a strong impact on this uh, big population, uh, which uh, was more and more disempowered. Now, we can't say that, uh, you know, peasant women were an engine of the revolution uh, or were, you know, uh, protagonists of the revolution. But they were there, you know, because the, the revolution was not only in Cairo, was uh, everywhere. And again, it's a problem of representation. It's much easier for a television, but even for scholars to do and do research in Cairo, because there are all the facilities and all the networks. It's much more difficult to go and uh, uh, film in the rural areas. Now, this is what should be done by, and by the way, there's a, there's a beautiful documentary uh, by, about um, the revolution as it is seen by uh, peasants in Egypt. And it shows the agency and, and the participation of uh, peasants, both women and men, in the revolution. 
Another thing which is important when we talk about working classes is that the labor movement uh, was an important engine of the revolution. Uh, the revolution started in 2011, but the movement uh, which was behind the revolution, the 6th of April movement, uh, was you know, celebrating the, the labor movement uh, of the textile district of Mahal al-Kubra, which uh, uh, was, you know, was um, on strike for years. You know, they, they organized uh, daily strikes for years uh, since 2006. And, uh, and the independent trade unions which were created you know, later on were also an important uh, component uh, of the political distance. They still are, they still are. You know, there, there were strikes two weeks ago uh, in Mahalla and, uh, and and, and they were quite strong, and, uh, and we have ethnographies, we have research uh, which documents that uh, you know, women uh, um, workers uh, were active part uh, and uh, you know, very present uh, in these strikes. And, uh, and they challenged many social taboos to participate in, in, uh, in the occupations of the industries and the strikes. So yes, there is this component which is understudied, underrepresented, and needs to be explored more. Another important thing, and then I would like to leave it to Fatma because I really want to hear about Morocco, is that uh, after the revolution there was uh, a flourishing of uh, grassroots organizations, this is true, including feminists and youth organizations, and uh, the contacts between uh, the city and the countryside uh, was again very intense. So um, organizations which were grounded in, founded in the city, they opened branches uh, in, uh, in the rural villages and in the countryside. And, and vice versa, you know, spontaneous groups inspired by the climate of the revolution were created in the rural areas. Collect, feminist collectives, you know, or um, groups of peer supports, readings groups. Uh, there was a real flourishing of all these activities, you know, and this was especially, you know, between 2000. No, it started very early after 2011, uh, and it continued, notwithstanding the difficult conditions, of course. Um, I will start by saying that Morocco used to be in the past uh, more rural than uh, urban. So we got like uh, more than half of the population was living uh, in rural areas, but now we, we, it's, uh, it's changing. And we had like uh, now, uh, if, if my memory is uh, good, like 40% of population are uh, on rural areas and 60% are in uh, urban uh, cities. Um, but it's not like two separate uh, worlds. There is a continuum between them uh, because uh, most of the families, for instance, uh, instance, who are living in Casablanca, this big city, they have their roots and they have their family coming and going uh, from uh, their uh, rural areas. Now speaking about the uh, women conditions, uh, there, there is a big difference between women conditions uh, living in uh, cities and in rural areas. Like in rural areas, the rate of uh, rate of illiteracy is higher than in uh, in cities. Uh, the health uh, issues are more problematic in this uh, in these uh, uh, rural areas than in the cities. 
the problem of education, as I said, because uh, most of girls, they drop uh, out of, of the system because the, uh, usually the, uh, the colleges uh, are away from, uh, from these rural areas, so they had to move to the cities, and because uh, they don't have family there, and they, uh, their parents are afraid to, that they get the problem, so they don't send, send them to continue to pursue their, their studies, so they just stop. Um, but uh, we can't say that there is some um, changes occurring now in Morocco, some really uh, social processes that are uh, going on, like um, uh, women, uh, women are, in the past they don't work, but now they are more and more challenging this idea of not going out to work, and they are working mainly in agriculture. This is a really important thing. And this is uh, when they, they, they start working, as you, um, they, it, it's always against the will of their parents. But then the parents see the money coming, so they just started to change in the stereotypes about this. This is the first thing, that the work. The second thing that I want to mention is the migration. Okay, the migration, uh, inside migration from rural areas to the cities. Usually, the, 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 the trends was that women never uh, go out, never migrate uh, alone. She had to just go with the, the family, with the parents, with the husband, etc., but never alone. Now, the trends, I don't know if I can say it a trend, but the, the, what is going on is that the more and the more women are, uh, are migrating alone, so the single autonomous migration uh, coming from these rural areas, these women coming to work and to look for work in big cities mainly. And this is also, as I said, challenging really the stereotypes of the patriarchy and all these uh, conservative uh, ideas. Uh, the third idea that I wanted to mention, maybe linked to what you were saying, is, um, uh, yeah, it's not, it's not a, a movement, but, uh, the more and more uh, women are becoming conscious about their rights, so they they can uh, start uh, forming a movement like the movement I talked yesterday about. Uh, but it's not something general in all over the country, but it's coming uh, out because maybe of these uh, links, as I said, between these two areas, but as well on media, because they saw things on television and they wanted to have the same rights. So all this process, may, local but as well global, uh, that what they see on, on media influence their consciousness and they started to challenge these things in a day, daily life. It's not something that uh, will come one day revolutionary, but it's really uh, in micro processes, if you can say. Thank you. Now, before I open it up to questions, I've just got one more uh, curly one myself, which is a lot of our understanding around feminist theory and feminist practice in activism comes out of European feminists and American feminists as well, but you know, the French feminists in particular, I would say, have been very influential in thinking about feminism as a political act, um, and the filmmakers too. So given that you've been talking about a different set of continuances, a different set of contexts, obviously the fight against colonialism, still the fight against patriarchy, which all women have faced and continue to face, but face it in different ways and different spaces. Um, what, what would you, how would you characterize the, the main threads of feminist thinking and acting now in Egypt, in Morocco? That's a good question again, but uh, I, you know, the, the big uh, 
You know, if I should uh, associate the word feminism today to another word in Egypt, uh, this would be absolutely human rights. Uh, in Egypt today, it's what is ongoing is uh, one of the, bi the biggest crises of, crisis of human rights, uh, uh, certainly in Egyptian contemporary history, but most likely in world history. And, you know, we have uh, hundreds of forced disappeared and uh, people uh, who, you know, who are prisoners of conscience uh, and uh, only for their political ideas. Uh, they are uh, in jail without trial. You know, we have a photojournalist uh, uh, known as uh, Shao Kahn, who has been in jail now for more than four years uh, without a trial, only because he was uh, on Rabah. Uh, taking photos. He's a photojournalist, uh, and, and the day there was the, the attack against the city in uh, the pro Muslim Brotherhood city in, in Rabal Adawiya, he was there doing his job. And in fact, you know, if you follow the campaign for uh, Shao Kahn, is photojournalism is not a crime. We have, you know, websites of information which are. Uh, shut 404 websites are not accessible in Egypt today. Among them, uh, Madamasr, which is uh, the, the independent uh, media platform uh, uh, in Egypt. It's bilingual, English and uh, Arabic. And, uh, you know, the, the, the first director of this platform uh, is a woman, uh, Lina Atalla, you know, a, 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 a journalist uh, who is also very engaged uh, in, uh, in human rights. And uh, we have, you know, as I mentioned before, the feminist art activists who are the most targeted are also human rights activists and advocates. You know, among them, the, the founder and president of Nazra for Feminist Studies, uh, Mosna Hassan, who is, uh, you know, uh, who at the moment uh, is, can't travel abroad. You know, her, you know she, she has been forbidden to travel abroad and uh, the assets of her organizations have been frozen and that uh, they are investigating, you know, for in a, in a big case, which, so, and, uh, you know, I could continue, you know, Al-Nadim, which is one of the historic organizations funded by psychiatrics, women's feminist psychiatrics, and who has been a leading organization in, in treating victims of tortures and documenting, you know, the, what happened to the victims of tortures has been shot last year. So it, the situation is really critical today. And uh, for this reason, yes, I think that today we can't talk about feminism in Egypt uh, if we don't talk about human rights. Yeah, I think in Morocco as well it's the same. They, they are linked. But uh, let me say something before, that in Morocco, uh, the women's situation uh, now, um, there is like a paradox. In the Constitution, we talk about uh, gender equality, we talk even about parity, so it's really uh, something really advanced. Uh, we, as, we, as I t uh, talk about this um, reform of uh, family code as well, uh, family law, which w w was really uh, something uh, uh, very modern at that time in 2004 in, uh, in, uh, in Middle East and the Arab world. So in the text, it's very, like, uh, let me say, no, no, not as much, but uh, really uh, perfect. But 
the problem is in the implementation of these laws, of these rights. Um, that's why this new generation of feminism for women, uh, for feminist women in Morocco are saying that we, we don't need anymore to work on texts, we need to work on mentalities because we have to change the mentalities of this conservative society. So this is, broadly speaking, uh, the, the, the situation, this gap. Uh, the second thing that I want to mention is that we are, we can speak now in Morocco, uh, like we have like three types of feminism, if we may say. Uh, we used to have this, uh, let's say it, uh, secular feminism, influenced by uh, Western uh, feminism, ideologies, etc., uh, which are uh, really uh, saying that uh, um, uh, Equality is uh, antagonist with the religion, so we, we need to s separate state and religion. And this is not only uh, women, there are also men, and mainly uh, the activists of human rights, you can find them on this type uh, as well. The second uh, is what we call Islamic, Islamist, uh, uh, feminism Islamist. Uh, coming from uh, political parties, from uh, uh, this Islamist NGOs as well. Um, I'm not sure if in that case we can speak about equality because they, they are uh, talking more on complementarity between men and women. It's like, yes, in, in, in the framework of Islam, there is uh, women's rights. They always say this uh, uh, discourse uh, that uh, before the, 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 the coming of the Islam, uh, women ha had, have no rights, but with the Islam, they got uh, many rights, yes. But I'm not sure if they're really um, uh, uh, trying to say that it's equality, in terms of equality, I mean. But there is a, as well a, a third type which we can call reform, reformist feminism. It's as well uh, Islam, they, they said, but those ones, they said that we can find equality, uh, gender equality in Islam, women's rights in the text Quran, if you, if, but we need to uh, do uh, more work on interpretation of the text. In this, and we have like uh, Asma Al-Murabat and others who are uh, really working on that case, and they are really uh, targeting as well something like, oh no, it's not, uh, it's like Western influence on, on this idea, etc. So this is mainly these three types of uh, feminism. I have a question, if I can, if I can jump sure. on it. Sure. Uh, I'm intrigued by the fact that you didn't use the expression uh, Islamic feminism uh, in relation to the third group. You used the expression reformist, you know, so, just uh, uh, Sadiqi as well, he used, uh, no, not Sadiqi, uh, Moha, he used this uh, reformist instead of Islamic to uh, separate between this uh, used, we, we used to call them Islamic uh, feminism, and those ones because they are both in the framework of, of Islam, but those are, are, are claiming, are, uh, are calling for a new interpretation of, of Islam. And they are, they are sure that equality is inside the text of Quran. This is the difference. The, other, the others, they are just, they don't say equality in terms of equality. They see it in terms more on complementarity between men and women. Thank you both very much. Now, let's open it up to the floor. I, I don't know if there's, is there a microphone for questions? Um, if not, I'll, I'll be the microphone. I'll come around. So, oh, there's one. There's one there. That's great. So who, who would like to, to ask a question? Yes. 
thank you so much for letting me field the question. I was wondering if I could ask two to both speakers. Okay, starting with Lucia. Um, looking at the fascination of ICT technology, particularly the April 6 movement, which I knew used Facebook um, before all other groups to try and um, raise people around their strikes against Mahala textile, for the Mahala textile workers, uh, would you say that there's been, from the Western perspective, a fascination to an almost Orientalist extent, the fascination of how Egyptians can use Facebook to mobilise themselves, almost sort of glossing it, um, in at the, at, at the expense of recognising the issues of unemployment, authoritarianism and genuine inequality that rests at the heart of the Mubarak regime. Do you think there's been a kind of smoke and mirrors through the study of ICT in Egypt? Yes, absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. You know, I think that, uh, you know, the expression, uh, you know, the Egyptian revolution has been called, you know, the Facebook revolution, the Twitter revolution. Of course, you know, Facebook, Twitter, social media were important tools. Uh, as you know, the press has been an important tool of mobilization in the 19th century and early 20th century. So the role of media can't be neglected, but can't be overemphasized. And you know what all the people I, I spoke to said is that you know the real you know turning point was then the internet was shut down. And everyone went to the square because they wanted to find out where the others were, where their kids were, where their families were, where their friends were. And they, and they could, as they couldn't not be in touch anymore through social media, they, they had to be there to, to see. And they were there with their bodies, you know. And, uh, and uh, this is absolutely something to take into consideration is not is not uh, a case that, uh, you know, one of the techniques of intimidation that the current regime uses are forced disappearances. They make disappear bodies. They make disappear people uh, uh, with, you know, with their, with, with their embodied presence. And, uh, and they try to avoid that people are there with their bodies uh, to witness in what is going on. So it's, uh, the, this body dimension uh, really needs to be taken in, in serious consideration uh, because it has many, also of course, gender implications that I, you know, we've been talking about you know, for one hour now, so I take it for granted. But yes, you know, we, we really need to be careful in not overemphasize the role of social media and saying, yes, they are important, they were there, you know, online platforms have been a space of freedom. Madamas is an online platform, uh, and they decided to be an online platform to be accessible. Uh, but uh, the you know the the pool of people who works for Madamas is there, and they experience everyday life there, and this is significant. They are resisting with their bodies. And just for, for Fatma, would you say that the Moroccan feminist movement adequately recognizes the minority condition of the Berber women? Do you think there could be um, greater development in that area? So the Berber women, um, as a minority condition living in Morocco, uh, would you say that there's been an adequate recognition, talking about intersectionality as a theme, do you think that the mainstream feminist movement has looked at that enough? Uh, I'm not sure if Moroccan, uh, if Moroccan Berber women will uh, say themselves that they are minority. Just joking, because they say that we, uh, uh, you don't know how uh, the, the number of percentage of uh, Berber in Morocco, so we, they are not 
uh, Berber in terms of uh, population, but in terms of uh, cultural rights. Uh, you know, okay. So I'm not sure if uh, there is a um, uh, distinction, distinction between uh, women, uh, feminist women and Berber women, okay? Because in uh, in this uh, uh, feminist NGOs, you can find women from uh, all uh, over the country. They may be uh, Berber or not. So uh, I'm not sure if we can separate between them. Yes, there is like uh, this discourse coming from the um, Berber cultural uh, um, movement. They say the Amazir movement. Uh, they call themselves. They, they say that. Uh, no, uh, Amazir uh, culture and Amazir civilization had uh, got, had um, given more uh, good position to women than Arabic, but it's, it's just a discord. They just construct this in order to uh, to make legitimacy. Uh, and there is more and more uh, Berber NGOs, women NGOs. Um, but um, they are uh, like all uh, the, 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 the former ones, they are based in the capital, in Rabat, and they are not in, uh, really in these areas where supposed to be these uh, women, uh, uh, I, I mean in rural areas and, and others. Um, yeah, I'm, but I'm, I, really, uh, I didn't think about that, but I'm not sure there is a distinction between uh, both. But we can uh, talk about this later if you want. In light of the ousting of Morsi in Egypt, um, reports of hate crimes against Coptic Christian women who were unveiled and Muslim women who were unveiled emerged um, as a revenge for a perceived betrayal of Morsi. My question is, can North African feminism and specifically Egyptian feminism transcend that interfaith um, tension? Wherever it can exist, I guess. You know, the Egyptian Feminist Union, which was founded in 1923, was the first uh, e secular, independent, interface organizations, I, I would say, in the Arab world. I think I'm not wrong. You know, I, I studied it with, re with reference to Egypt, uh, so I'm sure in Egypt, uh, but I could say in, in the, across the Arab world. And, uh, you know, the, the kind of feminism that they elaborated, and I talk about feminism because they call themselves feminists. You know, they, in Arabic at that time, there was not a word which inequivocably meant feminism. But if you read what they were writing, you know, what they were claiming, and if you read her, and then if you read their French publications, in French, they were using the word feminist. And so they, they had clear in mind what they wanted, and they were, had clear in mind that they wanted to represent themselves as feminists. And uh, so it's a... Uh, the, the problem of Coptic minorities with reference to Egypt and the interfaith relationships has been uh, manipulated by authoritarian powers, both seculars and, uh, and the Muslim Brotherhoods. Uh, you know, the, Muslim, the year of the Muslim Brotherhood government, uh, they tried to push very far sectarianism and uh, um, and the anti-Coptic sentiment. But the, the biggest massacre of Copts in Egypt has been done not under the Muslim Brotherhoods, but under the SCAF. It was October 2011. And the SCAF, the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces, was in charge of Egypt at that time. 
No one has been held accountable till today of that massacre, which was again one of the biggest massacres in you know in uh, in contemporary Egyptian history. Now that the biggest one was Rabah, but uh, uh, you know uh, Maspero wa was huge, and it was a shock for you know for for the Egyptian population. They had never seen you know something so violent till then. In, in, in such a measure. So uh, the problem is uh, not who is ruling, no, if we have an, uh, as, you know, a Muslim Brotherhood government or uh, a secular, so-called secular government, is the way authoritarian governments are manipulating uh, the, the theme of difference, uh, which can be religious difference, can be gender difference, can be um, cultural difference, uh, to maintain their own power and, uh, and to control. And then, of course, there are, you know, feminist, Coptic, you know, it, when you go to, to look at the Coptic activism, uh, you, again, you have the generations, uh, you have the institutions, uh, and uh, you have, you know, the, it's, it's very fragmented and it's very articulated. Thank you. Um, if you just pass down to the lady with the red sweater. Um, <clears throat> uh, about Morocco, I'm interested in that uh, feminist, uh, Islamic feminists or, or whatever. To what extent is it a rescuing Islam or as a rescuing Quran or the um, Islamic practices, what they do, and to what extent they, uh, 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 they are fighting for women's rights? I, I mean, trying to combine maybe, but what's the proportion? Of, how could you describe it? Yeah, um, uh, I think this uh, started um, in the uh, 1990s in Morocco. The emergence of, uh, it's linked to the emergence of uh, political Islam as well. It's, uh, it's at that moment that, that uh, women of, uh, who were uh, members of uh, Islamist political parties, who worked hard for these parties, became really claiming to get their position, uh, for instance, in, in this political party, because they don't used to have like uh, higher positions. And uh, they, they, they started claiming their rights more and more. They want to be more in public space, and they want to, to have uh, things to say. Um, and uh, I think this moment was really um, important in the emergence of these women in the public space, uh, as I said. Um, this, so we have these political parties, Islamic political parties, but also we have uh, an NGO which is not uh, legal. They don't have authorization from the authorities, but, but they, are, they are tolerated, okay? Uh, and they are really uh, implemented in, in the country. So, and they worked on this idea of uh, we need to revitalize this uh, idea of Islam, of uh, uh, Islamic traditions, and uh, they are against all Western feminism, all these ideas coming from, uh, from Europe, etc. And we got this really moment important in uh, um, 1988, where, we, where the government wanted to, to uh, introduce a reform we call this uh, plan to uh, uh, introduce women in, in, in development, something like that, uh, integration of women in development. So, and there, it's like the society was split into two groups, uh, Western feminists who were uh, 
for this uh, this program because it it came with very interesting rights for women and the Islamist camp who was really against just because they said you are just uh, bringing this idea from uh, from Europe and we don't want them they are not compatible with Islam we we are for the rights for women but we need to bring them in 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 our culture it's like if you we, we, we may say that it's really something also uh, fighting for them like imperialism we still live in this experience of imperialism and we are against that so this is the, really uh, the ideology that they are fighting for but I, I mentioned this third type, which I called reformist. I'm not one, there is another scholar who really uh, worked on that. They say that this third type of uh, reformist uh, feminism is also that we can find equality, gender equality in the text, but we need a new reinterpretation of this text, and this is really something new. And they are not they are criticized, but by this former Islamists because they said no, because these new interpretations are targeting some texts which are not supposed to to be changed in in the mind of of the the, the former, like. Uh, the whole debate on inheritance, you know. So now the, the debate in Morocco as well in Tunisia is that we need this equality in terms of uh, inheritance between men and women and not anymore that the men got less than, uh, the, uh, the, than, than men. So this is, for instance, the, uh, like a difference between both. The first uh, may, they might be uh, women, but they say no. We have this uh, this uh, Quran. The, what the text say that women get less than men. We don't have to touch it. We just accept it like that. Okay. But this new reformist, they say no. We can go beyond. We can interpret. Okay, in depending on the context, because there is more and more women working, and they are providing their families, so it doesn't make sense that they won't they won't got anything after the after. So it's this little difference which is very important now in in this process that uh, I just a short question. Uh, so the third group is quite small, I imagine, because it's newer and. Uh, I can't say the, Less the yeah yeah it's yeah comparing to the Islamists yes they, they, they are really uh, and uh, maybe yeah, it's small. also an intellectual uh, movement yeah. you know now you need you need skills yeah. to interpret the sources you know and to work but what's important is that it's also a transnational movement you know you have these uh, intellectuals who are really engaging in uh, this in writing you know in the newer hermeneutics of the texts. Uh, across the world. You have them, you know, in Southeast Asia, in uh, South Africa, in the United States, uh, you know, in uh, not only in the Muslim majority countries, but uh, across the across the world, in like Europe. The, uh, ne the networks. It, they are transnational uh, yeah. networks, you know, and, uh, and, they, and they produce, you know, they produce intellectual work and they, and, and they challenge, you know, the, the law, so it's... Well, there is something in English? Oh, there's a lot of scholarship. There is a website called uh, Women Living Under Muslim Laws, which uh, has continuous updating about the production of these intellectuals. Yes, and there are wide bibliography. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <coughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I've got two questions. Um, female genital mutilation has historically been at a very high rate in Egypt. I was just wondering about 
progress and initiatives um, against that practice. And secondly, in um, one of the um, largest group of feminist women amongst the different Arab countries is Western Sahara women, who are sort of split between refugees in Algeria and women under occupation in Morocco. By Morocco, I was wondering if there's any sympathy for the Western Sahara uh, situation by Moroccan feminists. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, because the, it's, it's, used, it's used to be like a political taboo, if you may say. Um, but I think there is, but not much, there is some um, uh, human rights uh, activists who are really um, maybe sympathizant with, with these uh, um, movements. And we also have what we call um, inside... Uh, um, Saharian inside Saharian, maybe it means that they are they, they are not uh, uh, Western Saharian, but they are living inside Morocco, but sympathizant with this uh, movement. Yeah. But uh, regarding women uh, right, uh, rights, sorry, I don't uh, I don't know. Yeah. Female genital mutilations is uh, you know one of the issues which has been uh, uh, more. Uh, you know, it has been a big issue which has been treated a lot by feminist activists, especially the activists of the so-called second wave feminism, and also since uh, the, 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 the late 70s. Uh, and uh, the NGOs, you know, women who were active uh, in the NGOs have been uh, producing a lot of work. And they achieved, uh, after, the, um, after a big conference, which was held, uh, a, a UN conference, which was held uh, in, in Cairo uh, in the mid-90s, they, they achieved uh, a law to obtain a law to forbid female genital mutilations. Uh, the problem is that, uh, you know, the, the government, which at that time was the Mubarak government, and, uh, and there are critical studies about this period, uh, used the big international and also feminist focus on this problem, which was a problem and it was a good cause, to hide the daily violations of human rights which were happening at that time, at the same time. So we have these, you know, if you read the reports of these years, it's, it's interesting to, to see the kind of schizophrenia in the government documents because they, they use this argument of, you know, the, we have to forbid female genital mutilations and they use all the paraphernalia of the, you know, the lexicon of the modernity. So we have to get rid of that because this is a barbaric thing and it's non-modern and this does not reflect our civilization. So there is this lexicon of the civilization which is, you know, neo-colonial and it's, and it's used. And uh, on the other side, there is a complete silence uh, and silencing of voices uh, which then try to denounce other abuses against women and men bodies which come from the state and which are, you know, the tortures uh, that were happening at that time. So it's, uh, it is interesting to see, you know, how these fights, which are important fights and uh, are, are key problems uh, and, and, needs to, and, and are addressed by local movements, uh, they are then sometimes manipulated by the agents of the states uh, and uh, how naive 
the, sometimes the international civil society is uh, when they're not aware of this game. Not only the, I would say no, not only the civil societies, but also the, the governments. And so we, we really need to be very careful and, uh, and, to, and, and when we try to, to support uh, activism in other countries and to, and to, and to engage with them, uh, to, to really listen to them. You know, and to and to really trust them, and to and to and to deeply engage with their work, because the the kind of challenges that they face are at multiple levels in these countries. You know, and uh, and only if you are an insider and you and you are engaged in everyday battle, you can un deeply understand the multiple levels that a, a correct issue like this one uh, can arise. Any more questions? I would have a question for Fadma. Absolutely. If there is not a, any more question. I know that Fadma had the privilege to work directly with one of my myths and one of the myths of all the feminist scholars around the world, which was Fatima Mernissi, who was a, pioneer, was a, a, a big figure in world feminism. You know, she wrote, you know, excellent memoirs. She, you know, all my students have read uh, the memoirs of Fatima Mernissi and, uh, and her social, sociological work, but also her, she was a very global, sophisticated intellectual, but she was also capable of engaging in grassroots activism. So I always, the question I always had, uh, what is the legacy that, uh, you know, Fatima Mernissi left in, uh, for your generation of feminist activists? Good question. Yeah. Yeah, Fatima Mernissi was really a fascinating woman. Uh, when you met her, I first met her like 10 years ago, and uh, I, I wanted to, to do interview with her. And she just started asking me, where are you from? Oh, you're Berber, you're Amazigh, you come from here. So you have to write the story of your, uh, of your uh, country, of your, this, uh, this village. Uh, it's more important than my, uh, my, uh, my biography. My biography is always done. So you, you have to do that. And she, uh, I thought that she just, uh, okay, uh, just don't want. But uh, then when I, I really became friend with her, I knew that this is her way to really give power to the, 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 the person in front of her or the population in front of her. It's her way to encourage people, but uh, they, she can, for instance, uh, met uh, an artist in uh, Rashidia, really uh, inside Morocco, in this city where no one can go, and she just will bring him to Rabat and give him the opportunity to be really uh, visible in the public space uh, for artists, for other artists. So she's like that, and she's really working with uh, uh, ordinary women, ordinary people everywhere. And she's really, uh, yeah, the, the legacy maybe is to, uh, that uh, I am happy to announce that we, 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 uh, we established in Morocco, in Rabat, in her university, which she used to teach in Rabat, University Mohammed V, uh, uh, in Cher, Cher, I don't know if you, you say that, Cher, yeah. Uh, at, the, at, at her university, and the, the, the objectives of this chair is that we encourage uh, young people, uh, PhD students, researchers, but as well artists, 
uh, or people activists from uh, civil society uh, and trying to give them uh, scholarships or maybe to organize workshops, uh, not mainly in the city, in the capital, but as well uh, in other uh, uh, small cities. Uh, this is how she, she, she used to think. This is like one of the legacy to continue what she was, uh, she was doing. Um, so m maybe this, this is the first thing, this idea of um, going to the people, to meeting people where they are. May it, may, they, they might be women, uh, young people, uh, etc. So she, she's good on that. And she's, um, this is the difference between her and the uh, classic academic, you know, she, because she's really doing this field work and she's going uh, to, to meet uh, people. Uh, the other thing which is very interesting in her work is how she worked on the lexic and on the um, vocabulary, uh, like uh, when she did this book on love, and she found like this many terms used to say what is love, uh, for instance. So I really loved how she uh, encouraged us, she invited us to befriend uh, words and to uh, write things about uh, uh, the phenomenon that are uh, occurring in our uh, societies. The third thing that uh, I can mention is she was really uh, observing, she was really this sense of uh, uh, really picking up what's, what's going on in her environment but as well in the world, in local and global world. She can sense the transformation, she can sense what's happening or what's going on or what is the next and she can uh, just keep you on her way. She's saying, oh, we need to talk about, uh, to think about this. Like uh, the, we had this, uh, this second book that I told you about, uh, about uh, living together. Uh, uh, and she, because she sensed that we had this problem in Morocco to discuss with each other. So she said, let's constitute this group of dialogue because we need to dialogue between us. Like another example, she sensed this problem of young people who were uh, uh, really fighting and having uh, problems in society. She said, we need to, to think about this. So, so how we can, how an, act, an intellectual can accompany the transformations of his society. This is, I think, the third legacy that we can learn from her. Thank you. Um, I think that was quite an inspirational way to bring this conversation to a close. So although I find, um, I find it fascinating learning from both Fadma and Lucia, um, I also know it's Friday night and you'll probably need to go home. But thank you very, very much for coming out and for joining the conversation. And uh, I hope to see you at another event soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.